You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, as I mentioned, we are finalizing our sermon series that we've been walking through through most of the summer called Doctrine and Emotion. We've been walking through various psalms hoping that as we cast our eyes on the words of the Lord, especially on the book of Psalms, which as I kind of said as we first frame this out, right, this is the, the, really the only book that is written primarily from man to the Lord. Most of the books that we have are written from the Lord to us, and yet here is the songbook of the people of God written to give us voice to the Lord and voice in the midst of this world that we experience. And so today we're, we're landing the plane, right? We're closing the door on this sermon series. And so I feel like I need to warn you as we do that, right? Because it, it, maybe you've never been a preacher or, or a pastor, but let me give you a little insight. You walk into every sermon series with this, hopefully, this kind of real deep desire of what you want your people to hear from the Lord. And then you get to the last week and you get this sense where you're like, uh, uh-oh, I think maybe they didn't do it. Maybe I missed some of that in some of the sermons. And so you get to the last sermon in the sermon series and you're like, all right, I'm going to preach on whatever topic that is, plus I'm going to fold in all the stuff I missed while we we're at it, right? And so if I get like unusually loud or I'm yelling at any point in the sermon, just know that it's because I love you. And I'm just trying to make up for all of our lost time together, all right? So again, uh, Psalm 34, as we finalize this sermon series, Doctrine and Emotion, let me just kind of walk you through the journey that we've taken, right? So we've been walking through individual experiences and asking the Lord what He has to say about those experiences to give us clarity about these experiences and emotions. And so the, the first week, we talked about joy. How joy is not given to us primarily out of circumstances, but there is an abiding, unshakable joy that we have in the presence and the glory of Christ Jesus, our Savior. And then we went from the high of joy down to right the lows of sorrow. And we said that sorrow is real in this life. It is deep and it's pervasive. Because we live in a world that is desperately broken and marked by sin. And so for those of us that want to kind of cover up and push away our sorrow that we might feel, we said it's right for us to experience that because this is a world of sorrow. One marked by sin and death. The next week we looked at confidence. A confidence that is not based on us but a confidence that is based on the Lord. And then we looked at fear. right? And we said that fear is something that we can actually admit to. That it does occur, occur in our life, but it's also something that we can face by the grace of Jesus. And then we looked at the experience of faith. Faith, which is not something we build up, but we are given as a gift by our Good Shepherd. And then two weeks ago, we looked at guilt, this experience that floods us, that stains us, that burdens us, and that's only washed away 
by the blood of Jesus. And last week, we looked at perhaps one of the most difficult of our experiences, despair. Despair that feels crushing and unending, but that is powerless to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our Savior. This sermon series is meant to help us understand our experiences. That word experience probably has a, a, a specific definition or connotation that comes to mind for you. Right, for some of you guys, you might think of experiences as being kind of this heightened place of emotion, right? these mountaintop places that maybe you get to in your life and you think those are experiences. Right, uh, Just a, a week or so ago, Noah and Rachel and I, we went to Cedar Point in Ohio, this like mecca of roller coasters to celebrate his birthday. And I came away with like just this unforgettable experience with my 13-year-old of unending nausea as I went on these rides, right? We, we think of experiences as kind of these mountaintop, these big emotional places, but that's, that's, that's not actually the core of the definition. Experience at its core is the process by which we gain knowledge, not from a distance, but through direct observation, through direct contact, through direct participation. Experience is living through an event. Not watching an event, not observing an event, but actually walking through an event. Let me, let me bring this home for a second. Here's, here's what I want you to do. Let's do a little exercise together. I, I want you guys to, to close your eyes for just a moment. The ushers are going to come by and just reach in your back pocket for your wallet as you do that. That's a joke. It's all right. Some of you, your hands immediately went there. Uh, Close your eyes for just a moment. Here's what I want you to envision. Yesterday was, I think, like a billion degrees outside. And so I want you to, while we sit in this air-conditioned room, I want you to go back to yesterday. All right? I want you to imagine a hot hot, St. Louis, humid, in the middle of August, summer day, right? At the end of that day, you've been outside all day long, you're hot, you're sweaty, you're overwhelmed, you're through with it, and someone hands you an ice-cold beverage of your choice. Now, in your mind, I want you to crack open whatever that beverage is, All right, I want you to put it to your lips, and I want you to drink deeply. All right, now open your your eyes. Give me some words to describe that experience you just went through. Refreshing. What else? Enjoyable. Ah. That's what went through my mind. Right? You guys can experience that. You know that experience. All right, now, now from that kind of tangible, visceral place, I want you to close your eyes again, and I'm going to give you a new scenario. It's the end of a long day, maybe a long day at work, maybe a long day at school, a long day with the kids, whatever it might be. You're tired. You're worn out. And now, I want you to imagine as you experience 
the Lord. Open your eyes for a moment. I want you to be honest with me and with yourself for a second. How many of you guys found it easier to envision the feelings and emotions of the first scenario more so than the second? Good. Four of you guys are honest. The rest of you guys, we will pray for your hearts to be softened in this message. Right? It's, it's in some ways natural to us because we view this world as tangible as knowable, as able to be experienced. We can hold the the cold drink in our hands. We can feel it hit our taste buds. But while this world feels tangible and knowable, the Lord feels theoretical. He feels notional. He feels incomprehensible oftentimes to us. But it's not meant to be that way. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is in the book of John, and it comes in in, in the fourth chapter. Jesus, in the beginning of his ministry, he makes his way, God in human flesh makes his way to meet with a solitary woman at a well in Samaria. He, He meets with this woman who is honestly, because of sin she's living in, ostracized from her community, and she's hiding from the rest of her community. And so Jesus comes to be with her, and he tenderly, but directly, lovingly, just lays her bare. He tells her that he knows exactly who she is and exactly what she's done, and he has come to be with her. This woman, so overwhelmed by the presence, the experience, of Jesus, she goes back into the town and we read that she, she begins to tell everyone of this man who knew exactly all that she had done but yet declared that he was the Messiah, came for her. And then there's this beautiful passage that one day these, these people that kind of begin to believe in Jesus simply because of the, the distant secondhand testimony of this woman, they come back to her and they say, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and now we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. They come back to the woman and they say, hey listen, you experienced Him, but we heard about Him. But now, we've experienced Him. We've been face to face with Him. We've been in His presence. We've heard His voice. We've felt the power of His teaching. We may have even touched Him, be embraced by this One that we know is the Savior. I wonder for most of us how many of us would be able to look and say of our lives, of our faith and walk with Jesus, that we haven't just heard about Him, but that we've been with Him. And not just once, not just on the day that we came to know Him, but daily, moment by moment, right now, that you are experiencing the presence of God. And, 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 and if you're like me, my response would be, well, he, I didn't get to see Him face to face. Right? I wish I was there as Jesus walked the earth, but He left. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. I've told you guys probably a dozen times, I love the show The Chosen. 
Uh, and, and there's this scene with Nicodemus. I've always told my wife, like, I'm like, I think the thing I'm missing in my relationship from the Lord is like a physical hug from Jesus. I'm like a tangible guy. If you're like a love language person, I think I'm like a physical affection guy, right? And so Nicodemus in this, in this episode, he's face to face with Jesus. It's the, the scene in John 3, 16, where Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And then Nicodemus, like, he falls down to worship Jesus, and Jesus lifts him up, and then he embraces him. And I'm watching this, like, with my kids and trying to be, like, a manly dad, and then my wife looks open and over, and I'm like a puddle, right? I'm like, I want a hug from Jesus, right? Like, most of us feel that way, and we're like, I get it. It sounds great to experience God in that way, but I don't see him as a burning bush anymore. He doesn't show up as fire or tornado, He's not in flesh. I can't touch him and be with him. I'm not Thomas. I can't put my hand on his nail scars. How am I supposed to experience him? And Jesus says this crazy thing when he's preparing to leave. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. In that same discourse, he said, I will ask the Father... He will give you another helper to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see Him or know Him, but you know Him. For He dwells with you and He will be in you. Listen, the the crux of that entire message from Jesus is it's actually good that me, God in human flesh, should ascend because when I ascend, you're going to get more of me because I won't be near you and with you, I will be in you. And So how can it be that we, the ones who are indwelled by the Spirit of the living God, could say that we, far more than the disciples, struggle to experience Him. To not observe Him from a distance, to not hear about Him, to not just rationally know Him, but to actually walk with Him and to be with Him. Well, the question is not, can we experience the Lord? As I've said, it's, how do we experience the Lord? And as we culminate this sermon series of experiences, I want us to culminate it with the experience of knowing the Lord. Experiencing the Lord Himself. And David, in Psalm 34, is a man experiencing the Lord. So here's three ways that I think David gives to us that we would know the Lord and experience Him. We experience the Lord by revering Him. We experience the Lord by reaching for Him. And we experience the Lord by responding to Him. Revering Him, reaching for Him, responding to Him. If you want to stop and give me a pat on the back for finding three of the same letters for my points after the sermon, I would appreciate it. Some people have a gift for it, I don't. But today, you're in luck. David starts in verse 1 that says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. 
David is, is, is coming off of a victory here in Psalm 34. He has been victorious over his circumstances through the powerful working of the Lord. As, as you read the Psalms, it, it feels like oftentimes those that worship, those that praise are the victorious ones. Right? Everybody loves when the football player, right, like, Catches a 70-yard slant, turns it upfield, scores the touchdown, and he kneels down, and he crosses himself, or he prays. Right? Those are beautiful things. Right? Victors celebrate. Victors worship. Right? The, the Olympics are just wrapped up, and I always love the interviews with the gold medalist. And sometimes you'll hear them say, man, all praise be to God for what he's done. And I'm like, man, I love that. But you know what no one ever does? They don't interview the guy they got last in the race. Like they don't interview him. He's like, hey, all praise be to God for my ninth place finish. Right? Like there's something about that we ascribe praise, worship to victory. But the New Testament repeatedly calls the church into unceasing, unending worship. And they're calling that people, which is a people marked by poverty, oppression, and suffering, to unceasing worship. Worship's not just for the victorious. It's not just for the mountaintops. It's not just for the winners. Worship is for everyone. Go back to the beginning of this summer as we were in a a, a previous sermon series and Pastor Brett preached a great sermon series on us all as worshipers. But why? Why do we need to sing the praises? Why is David saying, I will bless the Lord at all times. My soul will make boast. And then he invites us, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. Well, worship Revering God, if you will, is in essence simply declaring who the Lord actually is in contrast to what we often believe of Him. Let me say that again. Worship, revering God, is in essence declaring who the Lord actually is versus what we often believe of Him. At its core, it's simply proclaiming what is true of God. And what is true of God is shocking. Right? One of my, my, my favorite things that happens, and this is maybe this is more pastoral circles, but like if you're on Twitter or Facebook, everybody's angry anyway, so you probably see it. I always love when people will say of Christians or theologians or preachers, and they'll be like, man, that guy is just, he's overemphasizing the grace of God. Or he's overemphasizing the holiness of God, or he's overemphasizing the love of God. As if we could ever overemphasize the Lord in any way. Right? Think of our great God. He is the creator of the entire universe. Every planet, every constellation, every galaxy came from his mind and by the powerful speaking of his words. 
At the same time that He is the Creator of the galaxies, He is the Lord, the sovereign ruler of every speck of dust in the air and every molecule in your body. They do not move, they do not float, they do not exist apart from His rule and reign. And yet He is also the God who created us a little lower than the angels and then chose to dwell among us. He is the God who is both glorious and victory and with the victorious and He is also humble and lowly and with the suffering. He is the Redeemer that did not just rescue us but gave Himself over to the pangs of death in order to redeem us. When we sing, when we praise, when we speak the truth of God in worship, all we're doing is speaking what is true. And what is true is that the Lord really is bigger. And He really is better and he really is more holy and he really is more loving and more faithful than we get our arms around let me ask you this question when was the last time that you were caught off guard by the greatness of god when was the last time the greatness of god made you gasp that it took your breath away. Because when the people of God see God, they are, as Isaiah the prophet said, undone. David uses some words to, to conjure up our emotions and our memories when he speaks of praising the Lord. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. That Hebrew word bless literally means I will kneel before Him. I will lower myself, posture myself under the Lord. He says my soul makes its boast in the Lord. It's a a word that means illuminate, to shine a light, to, to, to see the glory of God, to praise Him. The Hebrew word is the same one that we get the word alleluia from, that we will sing in song. It makes its boast. It shines a light on the Lord. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Literally, to make great, to show that He is great. That Hebrew word is gadol. If you've, if you've read the, the book of Jonah, it describes the great fish. It's the same word. It's like this unfathomable, unimaginable, far above, bigger, greater, larger than everything else is our God. David says, I will bless the Lord, kneel before Him. I will shine a light on His goodness. I will make much of His greatness. David is increasing his sight of the Lord, how big he is all the while diminishing himself. Do you see that in each one of these places? He lowers himself. He kneels so that the Lord might look as great as he actually is. He shines a light on himself, which inherently means he's not shining it on himself, but the Lord. He shines a light on the Lord, not himself. And he makes great, he ascribes the greatness of God, which means he doesn't ascribe it to himself. He makes the Lord who he is, big and great, all the while seeing that he is diminished. 
Some of you aren't experiencing the Lord because you can't. And here's what I mean by that. Some of you guys are trying to experience a God that doesn't exist. You're trying to experience a God that is small, that is limited, that plays an advice-giving role in your life, that is worthy of some of your life, that is not nearly as powerful as He actually is, nor as faithful as He actually is. You're not experiencing the Lord because you're trying to experience not Him, but a version of God that you find palatable. And that God doesn't exist, which is why you're not experiencing Him. To experience the Lord, we must experience Him as He truly is. A God so great, so awesome, so loving, so gracious, so holy, so faithful that we can do nothing in response but erupt in praise. This is the experience of worship, of grandeur that you get when you stand by the edge of the Grand Canyon. When you feel so small in light of something so vast. It's the feeling you get if you've ever been out in a, a dark or rural place at night and the, 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 the sky is clear and you look up and you see the millions of stars overhead. And if for just a moment you begin to, to even consider the vastness of our universe and just how small of a speck you are, that's the sense of worship. Or, or maybe my favorite example, and it's when I feel, I think, how the Lord would have me to feel. I love to go out. My parents have a covered patio in the front, and when, when we lived there, I would wait for the, the thunderstorms to roll in, and I would go out, and I would sit on this patio, and, and everywhere outside of this little 10 by 10 patio, the wind was rushing, the rain was pouring, the thunder and lightning were crackling. There were trees and branches swaying and leaves blowing, but I was under a covering. And so here I sat in the midst of the storm, sheltered, all the while enjoying the fierceness of it. Like that's worship. It's to come under the covering of God in the midst of a world that rages and roars to sit under His covering. We experience the Lord as we revere Him. But David goes on, we experience the Lord as we reach for Him. I sought the Lord, he says in verse 4, and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him. And He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. 
David transitions the psalm now from this declaration of praise to a, a, a personal recollection, a testimony, his own story of the faithfulness and deliverance of the Lord. Psalm 34, the title says, is a psalm from when David changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. It, it recounts a story in 1 Samuel 21 where David, in fleeing from Saul, went into the territory of the Philistines, into the city of Gath where, where Goliath was actually from, and he went there with the sword of Goliath on his hip, right? He was going to be noticed, and he was, and so they... they the, the Philistines called the king and said, David, our enemy is here. Come and, 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 and slay him. And so David, in, in this harrowing time where his life was at stake, given wisdom from the Lord, he, he acted as if he was insane beside himself. And the king just drove him out and said, let him go his own way. David begins to recount this story of God's rescue, his provision, and he, he uses several phrases to paint a clear picture of his place in the story and the Lord's place in the story. Right? David uses words like this for himself. He sought the Lord. It says, I sought the Lord. Right? He looked to Him. He cried to the Lord. He tasted to see if the Lord was good. He feared Him, which means He trusted Him. That was the role that David played in the story. What was the role of the Lord? Well, David sought the Lord, and the Lord answered and delivered. David looked to Him, and the Lord made Him as one who is radiant. He cried to the Lord, and the Lord heard him and saved him. He tasted to see of the Lord and the Lord was good. Literally, that word means pleasant, sweet. It's the same word that described the, the tree in the midst of the garden when it said that Eve looked and it was pleasing to the eye. It's the same word used to describe the taste of honey. It's the same word used to describe a rich wine. He feared, trusted the Lord, and the Lord made him to lack no good thing. David experiences the salvation of the Lord. He experiences the provision of the Lord. He experiences His all-encompassing goodness. But David's experience is him reaching towards the Lord. And as he reaches towards the Lord, he sees that the Lord is moving back towards him. That the Lord is good to him. That the Lord responds to him. David partakes of the Lord. He moves toward the Lord. And he experiences the Lord's goodness. Right, these phrases, uh, I sought the Lord, he looked to him, he cried, he tasted, he feared, they seem like really simple phrases. But these are biblically astonishing truths. Right, David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. 
But we, humanity, were expelled from God's presence. Our way back to the presence of of God was guarded by an angelic being with a flaming sword that turned every which way to ensure we couldn't get back in. And yet here is David saying, I sought the Lord, and he answered. David says that he looked to the Lord and was radiant. But the Lord says, no man shall see my face and live. No sinful man can see my face and live. It recalls the the moment where Moses was before God and after spending time in the presence of God, he leaves and his face is radiant from being in the presence of God. And yet David says, like the one prophet that was called a friend of God and was in the presence of His glory, I too, you too, can look to His face and we will be radiant. He says He cries to the Lord and the Lord saved Him. You hear the echoes of the people of God in bondage in Egypt. They cried to the Lord and were told the Lord heard their cries. And through ten miraculous events, the Lord literally moves heaven and earth to save them. And yet David says, as if it's nothing, I cried. And the Lord answered and saved me. He tasted and saw the Lord was good. When Adam ate of the tree, he was cursed by the Lord. And the Lord said to Adam, That because he ate the forbidden fruit, the ground would be cursed. That eating would come only by the sweat of his brow as if he would always struggle against lack. Always struggle because of the cursedness of the ground to get enough to eat, to have enough to taste and be satisfied. And yet David says he tasted of the Lord and he was good. It was abundant. It was sweet and refreshing to his soul. And he feared the Lord and lacked no good thing. Right? This is the opposite of our rebellion. We feared, we trusted ourselves. And because of that, we came to find out that we are inadequate. That we lack when we trust in ourselves. But David says, I trusted here in the Lord and lacked no good thing. Church, this is, this is not a distant relationship. Like if I, if I had to characterize the, the relationship of most Christ followers in our culture to the Lord, it feels like it's like a middle school dance, right? Like all of us are on one side, which is kind of like sitting here, like swaying back and forth, and the Lord's on the other side, we just like give him winks every once in a while. We're not going to go up to him because he's over there, and that's like, whew, right? I know that just got really awkward and for people on the video. Just recommend your friends listen to the audio, not the video. But that's what most of Christian life is like in our culture. It's not intimate. It's not close. Right? You know how close you have to be to memorize facts about the Lord? Not close at all. Right? I, I was 200 years away from knowing George Washington, but I could tell you about that one crazy time where an apple like, fell on his head. I don't know if I'm getting him and Newton missed up or whatever, but I don't know. Right? There was something that happened. Right? Like, I don't have to be there with him. I don't have to know him. Some of you guys totally lost faith in me. I'm a preacher of the gospel. 
not a history teacher. Though I do have a master's in political science, which can't be good. Um, right? It's intimate. It's close. It requires contact. Our relationship is one where we are joined to the Lord. We partake of Him. Jonathan Edwards, I think, put this most brilliantly. He said this. There is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man can have the former that knows not how honey actually tastes But a man cannot have the latter, a real sense of its sweetness, unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mouth and in his mind. So there is a difference between believing that a person is beautiful and having a sense of that beauty. Listen, you can know honey is sweet because people have told you that honey is sweet because you've seen their reaction to tasting it. Someone can describe to you the makeup of honey, the amount of sugars in honey, and you can know rationally that it is sweet. But you will never really know until you have tasted it and seen. So how do we do this? How do we taste of the Lord? How do we experience Him? And to use David's analogy to taste and see, we do it by coming to the table. Right? We make spaces in our life to meet Him, to come to Him, to hear from Him. We make spaces in our life for prayer, to be in His Word, to be before Him in silence and solitude, the, the, the most lacking of spiritual disciplines in our culture. To be in His presence with His body, which is the church. Making these spaces is going to push against our culture that says that you must constantly do and do and do. It requires you and I slowing down. To be with Jesus means to live a life like Jesus. And Jesus, for being the Messiah of the world, lived the least hurried life ever. People were constantly asking him to go faster. He was constantly doing ineffectual things that we would say like stopping and being with his father. On the way one time to heal a little girl that was on her deathbed, he stopped not to heal another woman. He had already healed her. He stopped just to speak to her. And we also are called to experience the Father, His creation, His people in a way that requires us to make space in our life. Space where we actually listen for Him. Right? Like people say, like, man, the Lord didn't answer my prayer. Did you actually listen for Him to answer your prayer? I know I don't. I wake up and it's like verbal, like, vomit from my mouth towards the Lord and then I'm like amen and I'm off Lord answer me please I need your help God will you answer me I just need your help so bad right now amen I got to go to work 
the Lord's like, hello? Is anybody there still? All right, we make space to look for the Lord, to expect Him to be there. We make space to do the thing we hate, which is to wait for the Lord. To taste and see. We experience Him by coming to the table. And we come, we experience Him by being hungry. Right? By not having our mouths and our stomachs so filled by other things in our life that we actually need to taste and see of His goodness. Right, some great theologians said the only precondition to experiencing God is your need to experience God. And most of us, though we would never say it out loud, spend our life trying to surround ourselves with so many things that we will finally reach the space of not needing God. Just enough money, just enough relationship, just enough comfort, just enough security in my job, just enough value that I get from the affirmation of other people that I won't need the Lord. But if your pride or insecurity refuses to allow you to be needy, to be inadequate, to be undone, that you won't come to the table. If you've already placed your hope in something else, you won't come to the table. If you've already placed your hope in someone else, you won't come to the table. Like think right now before the Lord, what are you needy for? Like do you come into this place needy? Psalm 143 says, I, I lift my soul to the Lord. Did you come to this place knowing, God, I'm going to lift my soul because I need you to care for it. And finally, we experience Him by tasting Him not once, but again and again and again. Like everything else, we build a taste for the Lord. We continue to go to Him even when it doesn't feel like we experience Him. Why? Because I don't just eat when I feel hungry. I eat because I know that my body needs the nourishment. And so I come to give my body what it needs in order that I might be healthy. And the same goes for us in experiencing the Lord. Finally, we'll do this quickly. We experience the Lord by revering Him, by reaching for Him, and responding to Him. David ends his psalm admonishing the crowds, come, O children, listen. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What is man that he desires life and many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil. Do good. Seek peace. Pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off their memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. David ends the psalm admonishing and teaching the crowds essentially one single truth, and that is that the righteous, they live under the favor of the Lord, while those who are opposed to Him experience destruction. The righteous live under the favor of the Lord, but those opposed to Him experience destruction. And that begs two questions. What does it mean to have the favor of the Lord and who are the righteous? Well, the favor, 
many have thought that coming to the Lord, right, maybe, maybe this is you, many in the church have thought that coming to the Lord meant that life would be easy, that hardships would cease, that suffering would be no more. But verse 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. So somehow the favor of the Lord is not separate from us experiencing afflictions. Jesus told us in this life we will have tribulation. Many trials, suffering, sorrow. Why? Because it's a world of sorrow we live in. And we are still in this world while we have His favor. His favor. It means, as it says in verse 15, that the eyes of the Lord are towards us. That His ears are towards our cry. Right? These are eyes of love and adoration for those who are called righteous. He sees us. He knows us. He has not forgotten us. He comforts us. There is probably no sight that I love more than when my children are sad or hurting and they run to Rachel to see their eyes fixed on her as they see her looking at them. That is the favor of the Lord. His eyes. And what do His eyes do? They lead us to deliverance. Verse 17, they deliver them out of all of their trouble. They save the crushed in spirit. He is the God of victory. And the world bends to His will. He will come and redeem it. So even though now the afflictions of the righteous are great, He will carry us through to his victory. That's the favor of the Lord. So what's his righteousness? What does it mean to be righteous? He tells us twice. He tells us in verse 14, turn away from evil, do good. The righteous one is the one who does not do evil, but does good. That word good is not just a description of good things. It's a description of the Lord. Right? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Turn away from evil and to turn towards the Lord. Do what the Lord has called us into. Those who respond to His goodness are called righteous. And then 18, who else is righteous? It's those that are brokenhearted and crushed in spirits. Literally, those who, whose hearts are broken by their sin. Crushed in spirit is oftentimes translated contrite in the face of the Lord. They respond to the Lord with empty hands knowing that they need His grace and mercy. So we experience the Lord. We experience His grace and His mercy, the very gaze of His eyes, His affectionate presence as we turn from evil and we respond to His goodness by doing good. We experience Him as we do the good things that He does. Right? One definition of discipleship I love is being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing the things that Jesus does. We be with Jesus as we do the things of Jesus. We are with and experience the Lord as we do the things of the Lord.
and we experience him as we count him as better and seek to fulfill his commands. My wife this morning, we were talking through the sermon just a little bit, and she said something that was so profound to me. She said, you know, it's crazy. The New Testament talks as if we can actually be holy. They just say things like, be holy as God is holy. Right? And I, I read it and I'm like, okay, yeah, that doesn't seem all that easy. But she said it's as if there is an invitation that as we pursue the commands of God, that God will somehow miraculously fill us with His presence and power to fulfill those commands. If you want to experience the Lord, then respond to Him. Step into, pursue holiness, not with the confidence that you in yourself could ever be holy, but that the God who raises dead men to life can empower you through the miraculous work of His Spirit, of His Spirit to be holy as He is holy. We experience the Lord because He is with us and He is real. As we worship, as we see Him as big, as we experience His grandeur. We experience Him as we reach for Him. As if He is right in front of us and able because of the work of Christ Jesus to be grasped by us. Like a child reaches for his parents. And we experience Him as we respond to Him. As He leads us and we follow Listen, my prayer in all of this sermon series is that your heart would be connected to your mind, would be connected to your desires, and would be connected to the truth that our God is with us in the midst of this world. That in sorrow, He is there. In joy, He is there. In fear, He is with us. And even at the depths of despair, in the moments where we feel we have nothing left, the Lord is with us. So church, let me leave you with these words, this admonition. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Fear the Lord, trust the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. Even the young lions, they suffer want and hunger. But for those of us who seek the Lord, know the Lord, are with the Lord, we will lack no good thing. Pray with me.